Welcome back to See Also, your weekly dispatch of pop culture thoughts and further reading wormholes. I'm Kate Jinks. And I'm Brodie Lancaster. And this week we have our first guest on See Also, girlfriend of the pod, comedian Zoe Coombs-Ma. We're also looking back on the final season of Search Party and the four that came before it and talking about the legacy of Joan Rivers. Basically, if we were a magazine headline in 2004, we'd be the Women in Comedy special. Jinxie, what have you been up to since our last episode? Okay, well, look, I felt kind of bad for myself after the last episode when we were talking so much about work-life balance uh, and the impracticality of that kind of thing when you work in the arts. So I took a weekend for myself. Well, a three-quarter weekend at least. We've inspired ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? I think we had like a similar response to listening (laughs) to ourselves kind of vent about our struggles, how hard our lives are. Yeah, like listening to it going, oh, baby girl, there's a whole other world out there for you. <laughs> Take a break, babe. It sounds like you really fucking need it. Exactly. What did you do with your weekend? I went to a market with like a bunch of local growers and flower sellers and bakers and things. It was all like a fundraiser for um, refugees from Ukraine And I also cleaned my apartment from top to bottom and just basically did a bunch of things to avoid sitting at my laptop all weekend. I did something that I have been waiting, honestly, months to do, which was um, to audit the contents of my pantries in my kitchen. Wow. I wrote it on our notes. BL has a new spreadsheet. (laughs) I was wondering what this spreadsheet was. Yeah, because I can't do anything if it doesn't result in like a color coded spreadsheet. And I think like two years ago when we were all told that the supermarket shelves were clearing out and you had to stay home and you couldn't go out, et cetera, et cetera. Don't want to encourage any flashbacks, but I think my, my, my response to that was to just buy like a little extra every single time I went shopping. And the result of that is that I am a single person who lives alone and I don't have any space for like more groceries in my apartment. And I have like three jars of mustard because I just keep buying things that I already have. And so now I have an inventory. I have like a stock list. Who knows how I will update it or if I will, but it's there now and it has like 350 items on it. I also did a bunch of cleaning on the weekend, which was a real thrill to finally get to do that. And like you, just to spend that time away from the laptop or even away from like a screen. But I did have a screen on while I was (laughs) doing some cleaning I was inspired by a commenter on Roxanne Gay's Twitter feed. She was asking for Paris tips because she's going to Paris for her brother's wedding. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of like real basics, you know, it's like eat a croissant, you know. (laughs) This is the equivalent of people who post what a podcast to listen to on Facebook because they've just listened to Serial. Exactly. Yeah. So there were a lot of, you know, like have a croissant, eat the pastries. (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of croissants. So many. But then one guy had a photo of himself in front of a fountain and said, go to this fountain. It's where Anne Hathaway throws her phone at the end of Devil Wears Prada. Her sidekick, if I remember right. Yes. And he did note that in Uh in his um, tweet. And I thought... I haven't watched that movie since it came out. So I had that on the background while I was cleaning. And when that finished, I got a, do you want to watch the princess diaries? And I thought, 
Yeah, I do. So it was a real Anne Hathaway cleaning situation at my house on the weekend. And it did bring up memories of this thing that uh, my friend Joe informed me about a number of years ago, which seemed like if it's true, should Stanley Tucci be facing some kind of threat of cancellation. Wait, what? <laughs> so I don't want to... American Treasure Stanley Doogee. <laughs> exactly. Look, this was from like page six from the time uh-huh. of like during the media blitz around the Devil Wears Prada. So it's page six. It might not be true. Allegedly, uh-huh. Stanley Tucci has some kind of breast obsession and used to... T- <laughs> used to touch Anne Hathaway's breasts and she spoke about it in an interview. Allegedly, she spoke about it in an interview. And um, she said, Stanley, can you please stay away from my tits? He got really flustered and said, what do you expect? You're flinging those melons around like it's harvest season. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I don't... Is this before or after she... um, The nipple dress. This would have been after, right? I'm not, I can't remember the nipple dress. I think the nipple dress was Brokeback Mountain. Anyway, wow, fuck. I know I know that everybody loves Stanley Tucci and they love Stanley Tucci's yes. Negronis more than anything else in this world. Stanley Tucci is universally beloved as a gay man, I also believe, because of his roles in films. Absolutely. And when people discover that he's straight and married to Emily Blunt's sister, they're always like, what the fuck, Stanley Tucci's straight? Mm-hmm. So, uh, look, I don't know if this is true... It was covered by Gorka back then. Wow. Um, but, Stanley Tucci Feely. But I think of this every single time I hear about him or see him. <laughs> That's all I can think about it. Can I just say it again? Yeah, well, it's now so I funny. Will too. What do you expect? You're flinging those melons around like it's harvest season. I mean, look, it's got the quippy quality of a Stanley Tucci line, you know? Right. It's believable is the Mm. thing, allegedly, allegedly. Yeah. So anyway, um, do with that information what you will. (laughs) But speaking of harvest season, (laughs) I went to the, uh, I spent my Sunday at the Melbourne Flower and Garden Show. Incredible. And it was really lovely. I felt like I was really truly in my twilight years mm-hmm. um, spending Pottering my day there. I even contacted them days before to ask if I could bring my dog. I could not. Uh, and I still went. The fact that both of us were like, I had a great weekend of cleaning, really kicked us off on like a very <laughs> cool note this week. <laughs> One kind of exciting thing that's happening is that the Melbourne Comedy Festival has started And uh, we're going to get into our conversation with our very special guest this week, Zoe Coombs-Ma. It's a big day on Sea Also, our very first guest, (laughs) award-winning comedian, girlfriend of the pod, Zoe Coombs-Ma. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a a delight to watch you work. (laughs) It's really good to see you. Yeah. I mean, it's annoying that you're a girlfriend of the pod, but I still had to go through your agent to get you on the pod. You did not. No, I didn't. (laughs) Can you imagine that? As you were saying that, I was like, did you? (laughs) No, they don't know this is happening. They don't. Yeah. Helen, don't turn off. Helen's furious. (laughs) We saw Dave last night, your new show. I know. Um, Kate had seen it before. She's yep. very familiar, but it was my first time. And I need to ask how you are because <laughs> the bruising that you posted on your Instagram now makes sense to me now that I've seen the show. Yeah, I am exhausted. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm exhausted. I'm bruised. I've done six shows so far and I feel like I have been 
beaten with a cricket bat. Dave is a very physical, he's a physical guy. You've really got to get inside him. He really is very physical. I'd forgotten how physical he was. When I was deciding to do a new Dave show, I was like, oh yeah, and he's pretty physical because he often falls and stuff. And obviously the bruising listeners, I'm not going to give too much away. There's a pretty violent dance number that I do, (laughs) which results in me having some bruises in some intimate parts of my body, Um, (laughs) some soft inner thigh area. It's a lot. But Dave is a very physical kind of clowny character, so he generally does like lots of pratfalls and stuff. But I'd also forgotten how physical it is, just the stand-up parts of Dave. Like, I walk kilometres during this show, Does just Dave pacing. Have a Fitbit? No, like a- but I'm going to borrow Geraldine Hickey's Fitbit just to see how many steps I actually do. <laughs> she almost led it to me last night because we were in the same venue. Uh-huh. She was on before me. So she came by and she was like, do you want to wear my Fitbit? <laughs> I was like, not tonight, but later. Yeah, you're yeah. going to close all your circles. Oh, yeah, Loops, well, rings, all, all jazzes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Her stats are going to be great. Yeah, yeah, she'll be amazing. We talked about Pen15 last week or a couple of episodes ago on the podcast and um, there was a moment watching you kind of disappear into Dave that really reminded me of the way that those actors kind of like morph into like, you know, uh, uh, there's a hunch involved. Yeah, there's a weird physicality. So it's this kind of like I walk a lot and pace a lot as Dave, but also hold my body in a totally different way. So there's this weird kind of core strength that's involved in just doing stand up as Dave that I had forgotten about. And so every day I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm so sore. It's like you've done a big reformer class. Yeah. Yes, and it's Dave like Dave needs to do Pilates. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dave is Pilates. <laughs> I, I should start. Oh my God, Dave. Dave classes, wow. Dave Pilates. So can you, so Dave is a character, he is in the room with us all the time, but he <laughs> is a character that you created at one point in time because you were not comfortable performing as yourself or audiences weren't comfortable perhaps. And so you created this hack male comic yeah. uh, and did the show Dave. And well, I didn't then- really create him. He just he just appeared. arrived. He was you met here. him a number of times yeah. in the yeah. scene, and then became him. just emulated. Yeah. yeah, and then you did a show called Trigger Warning in 2016. You won a bunch of awards for it. I did. How did you know about that? Uh-huh. You've done I, your yeah, research. Your agent sent me a bio, <laughs> and now he's back. But he's uh, been in a coma for a number of years. Is yeah. that right? Yes. So. The premise of this show is that, because I, and I say this in the show as well, because I am in the show a little bit as well, not to give too much away. I had no intention of doing a new Dave show, as you know, and um, I don't know if you knew Brody, but I had no intention. (laughs) (laughs) And then he just sort of, people started asking me and I started thinking about him all sort of around the kind of ongoing loops of conversations that we don't seem to be able to get out of of people talking about cancel culture and he just kind of popped up and so the premise was oh Dave's just come out of a coma and he's trying to catch up with all of this sort of stuff so he's missed he last time I did him was 2016 which was before me too before Trump but I was sort of talking a lot about like the idea of canceling before we really called it that Uh, so the idea of this character kind of coming back like a comedy Encino man and just trying to like grapple with the world and Mm. being so uninformed but talking about politics, which I think is a lot of comedy as well. People are like, here's my hot take. I know nothing, but here are my opinions. Like opinions without 
any kind of information. That sort of is what Dave is. And then he's got this coma aspect on top of it as well. So he's kind of, he's fighting an impossible fight. <laughs> yeah. And the last few years, there, the conversation has largely been, but what about the white, white men? And yeah. You were like, well, I know one. Who can, <laughs> who can? Who has some feelings on this? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's really weird because the show that I did in 2016, Trigger Warning, was about all of that sort of stuff of like, oh, political correctness and people being cancelled and you can't say anything anymore. And it genuinely feels like we haven't really moved on. Like we had a moment Absolutely. with like Me Too and stuff and people kind of having, you know, kicking back. But then it just becomes what about white men? Like, mm. oh, but, but his career, it's a man's career. And mm. all this sort of stuff. And it's like, they're fine. And they continue to flourish. Yes. Yeah. Stanley Tucci <laughs> continues to work today. <laughs> Big juicy. What did he say? Big juicy melons? Or? Flinging those melons around. Like it's harvest season. I mean, it's it the is title funny. Of the episode. <laughs> it is really funny. It is it's really a funny, funny thing to he say. He was elbowing too. Yeah. You wanted him out of the way, if anything. Well, yeah. Why am I defending him? <laughs> Justice for Tucci. want us to do. I'm part of the problem. <laughs> but yeah, it just is. To me, there's this sort of absurd nature of that whole kind of conversation, which is what Dave has sort of always been about. It's Mm. like, actually, a lot of this is nonsense and let's try to get past that, you know, it's this like, what about these men and oh, my emotions, Mm. I'm sad, don't be mean to me, like a lot of that. Don't cancel me. Mm. It's like, it's made up. It all comes back to like. No, don't. Yeah, don't be mean. Don't. Don't. No, you made me have a bad feeling. <laughs> like that's a lot of like the, you know, me too. And then the sort of like weird, like all the conversations around like Christian Porter and like PVO and these kind of rape apologism that has happens is this kind of thing of like, but what if your friend, what if you, he's your friend or yeah. what if you, what, but I wanted to have fun. Yeah, Yeah. I thought we were having a nice time. Don't bring us down. Yeah, Yeah. and it's like it's you. You can still have a nice time. Yeah, they're not taking away jokes and laughter and fun and your friends. Like you can still have friendships. You can still friendship groups have conversations. Yeah, it's I don't know. It's this really weird. But the beautiful thing thing about Dave is that because he's you. um, You you love him. Like he's he's kind of repulsive, but also we're really. We're rooting for him. Oh, yeah. yeah he totally. is revolting, but... But he's so sweet. I, I actually I loved him. Yeah, yeah. I, I did miss him. Um, did you? A little bit. Like, I, I don't I don't like to see him at home. He's not allowed in the house. No. He's so not allowed in the house. Oh, my God. But, you yeah, know, I did miss... I missed Dave from being around because he has a lot to say... But also not very much to say at all, and I I do enjoy that. He's kind of he's a very emotional character, mm. Dave, and I feel like I'm not really being very articulate, sort of trying to talk about this stuff. But it is this kind of weird thing. Like I initially did Dave as a way of trying to sort of exist in stand up, which is really and it's gotten better in some ways and worse in other ways. But it, at the time, it was like this incredibly male environment and it was really sexist and that was sort of coming from the audiences and stuff as well and Mm. Dave became a way to exist in that space and to sort of have a voice Mm. but now he's this sort of he's like an exercise in empathy as well because a lot of the things is it's not about these guys being these horrible bad guys a lot of the time I mean there are obviously horrible bad guys we have met them (laughs) but it's sort of about this thing of 
you know, who is this guy trying to please and how is he trying to fit into society? What is he trying to, what is he actually grappling with? And Dave generally ends up on the right side in a way. You know, he kind of goes, he's he's trying to be offensive or he's trying to do what he thinks he's meant to do. Mm. And it's all about fitting in with other men and stuff as well. It's about the structures Mm. more than it is about the individuals because I think we can kind of get really caught up in the individuals and like, what about this guy's feelings? Mm. It's like, no, it's... It's, it's actually really complicated. It's lots of systems and things at play as well. Mm. So that doesn't sound very funny, but... Um... <laughs> he talks himself around, which yeah. is really fun to watch. Yeah. So Dave missed a lot, as you said, over the past five years. But he woke up at some point in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> Was it Che Diaz that ripped him out of a coma? <laughs> Can you confirm or deny? Quite possibly. Yeah. It was a lot of it. Yeah. It was just he had his own woke moment. <laughs> he awoke. <laughs> he awoke from his coma. Yeah. I think it was, it wasn't really Che Diaz. Um, it was more Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the conversations around Similar. That. Very similar. <laughs> very, very similar. Che Diaz... That character, I know, you, I'm, have you talked much about a little we bit we've touched on? Yeah. The podcast started after and just like that wrapped. So um, mm. we just did a little look back. I think it was like if we started talking about it, we'd never stop talking about it. So we, we've just been like silencing ourselves. Silence we were watching culture. the clock as we did it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so much. Yeah. There's too much. It's a, it's a sinkhole, a yeah. JDS sinkhole. But, yeah, I feel... <laughs> I feel like the thing that I'm most outraged by, two things about Che Diaz. One is that character is so unlikable it feels transphobic. (laughs) (laughs) So unlikable, it's incredible. Two, the most, as a stand-up, like the the comedy, the way that... Not a joke to be had. Not a single joke. (laughs) That character does not do a joke on or off stage Mm -hmm. ever. Not a single joke. And also... Why is the audience standing up in the the comedy concert? Well, it's a concert. You see? If it was a show, they'd be sitting down. Yeah. That's the the difference. Oh, right. That's why it's the comedy concert. In a way, Diaz has quite a lot in common with Dave because um, (laughs) they seem to have just had like an idyllic upbringing and Mm. come to the stage going, my life's really good. My parents were supportive. Like, Che Diaz kind of has an experience of, like, a white man in the world where everyone just accepted (laughs) them for who they are. Yeah. Everyone wants to fuck them. We didn't see the struggle, if there was a struggle to be had. There seemed to be no struggle. No. Mm. Which is nice. Mm. And Dave struggles every night, but not because of his upbringing. Yeah, Dave is just (laughs) all struggle. Well, Dave didn't have an upbringing because he's not real. What? (laughs) And he knows that. That's also the funny thing about doing this show now is that he's a character who knows he is a character. He knows mm. he's a construct. So he's kind of on stage going, I know I'm not real. I know I'm a parody. <laughs> like, it's fine. I'm going to ask, do you enjoy performing as Dave in a special way that is very different to performing as yourself? Like, do you look forward to embodying Dave because it there's sort of a freedom that it allows perhaps or...? Yes, I do look forward to doing Dave in a different way and there is more freedom to performing as Dave in a way, but it's also it he sort of was that originally and now I have been performing a lot more as myself more recently. So there's a kind there's a lot of restrictions with Dave as well because he's sort of he is a constructed character so he can only sort of do so much but 
at the same time, Dave is very me as well. So it is quite fun. There's a lot more that I can get away with as Dave. And it mm. is quite fun just being like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Zoe, in the spirit of our podcast, we love to recommend, you know, things that we've been enjoying. Do you have any see also's from the comedy festival that you I- can share? Do. I haven't seen anything yet <laughs> because it takes so long to get ready for my show and so long to clean up. But um, I do have lots of recommendations because I've seen little bits of people's shows as they've been sort of like prepping for things. And so word on the street is that um, there's, I mean, there's, okay. So all the shows at the Art Centre are all great. They're all mostly women as well. So there's like Jude and Scotty. Amazing. Love them. Geraldine Hickey, myself, uh, Michelle Brazier. So if you want to, you know, make a bit of a night of the art centre, mm-hmm. that's some... Head to the precinct. Some high-end, you know, high-end female comedy. Um, also, uh, people who I always love to see who make me laugh a lot are Greg Larson. Very funny. He's about to start his show called... I think it's called We All Have Bloody Thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom Walker as well is a clown, but let's not mm-hmm. hold that against him. He's <laughs> doing a show called Javelin, um, which was a show that he was working on in 2019. And so this is his pre-COVID show, which he's obviously worked on since then. Great. But it's literally all about Javelin. So I have I saw it back in 2019. And I was like, oh, wow. This really is all about Javelin. If one person could make that work, it is Tom Walker. <laughs> yeah, totally. Also, um, Lou Wall was one of the shows that I saw last year, which I really enjoyed. Um, Lou is like a musical comedian sort of, but like in that, a very modern, like TikTok-y type of way. Okay. They're very talented and very cool. So it's sort of like hectic, queer TikTok musical comedy. Um, also, there's like heat. There's a really good crop of like young comics coming through. So like Scout Boxel, um, uh, Bronwyn Cuss, Irvie Majumda, Grace Jarvis, all really great. You know, young, newer sort of comics who are doing really, really great things. Also, Vijay Rajan is doing a show which has a really hilarious poster that is one of the Animorphs. Uh, it's like a. a take on an Animorphs book cover, which oh, is great, great, where she's turning into a snail. Um, and Alistair Baldwin as well, they often do stuff together and they're both really interesting and cool. And uh, also Rosie Piper is doing a show, which was like a pre-COVID, we're getting to see it now show. Mm-hmm. And Alex Ward is also really great. Laura Davis is a classic old pal who is like intense, excellent stand-up. Great. Yeah. You mentioned the poster before, and that is a true art at the comedy festival. Mm -hmm. Every year as I flip through that program and there's a hundred variations of like, I don't know, poses, which I can imagine I would do in that position. In a fisheye lens taken from someone standing on a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Dave's poster, your poster as Dave really stands out. Yeah. It's very sexy. It's Dave's looking really sexy. Yeah, he's a really sexy guy. Um, yeah. Can you say, I'm Zoe Kuzma and this is my favourite podcast, See Also? I'm Zoe Kuzma and I draw the line at podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but I will listen to this one. See Also, it's great. We'll have a list of all the shows that Zoe recommended on our Instagram and we'll save it to the highlights in case you miss it in that first 24 hours. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. See you later. Bye. See ya.
there's one comedian that I have been thinking about quite a lot recently and like revisiting their work over the past few months. Um, and that's Joan Rivers. I, uh, one of the first books that I read this year was I like to watch, which is a collection of, um, criticism by Emily Nussbaum, who's a TV critic for the New Yorker. And she had this piece in it, which I didn't read when it came out in like 2014, 2015, which is called the last girl in Larchmont. And it's about Joan Rivers, her kind of legacy as this trailblazer, but also Emily Nussbaum's very specific response to Joan Rivers growing up as like a young girl, like her kind of increasing awareness of feminism and the way that Joan's comedy kind of bristled with her sensibilities. But then as she learned more about Joan and what she had to endure in the industry, the respect that she kind of came to have for her, which I had the exact same response reading this essay. And when I went back to look at when Emily Nussbaum first published this piece, there was one response to it on Twitter that described Joan as being like a great boxer with a glass jaw, which I found such a like apt description of someone who's whose takes were so brutal at times. The way that she picked apart women, especially women's bodies and their just overall appearances on things like fashion police and like red carpet coverage was so intense that you kind of always had this thought in the back of your head that like if you laughed at what she said, you could be next. But she was so intensely sensitive, which was something that we saw really laid out in a piece of work, the documentary about her and her life and career. Yeah, I loved that documentary. Um, came out in 2010 and I feel like Joan Rivers for me at that point was, I knew her as a trailblazing comic who had opened a lot of doors for women and had been through a lot of trauma, etc. But I just felt like she was like a piece of the furniture at that point. Like she was just, just oh, it's Joan hacky. Rivers. Yeah. yeah. And so when I saw that documentary, it really floored me. And the one thing that really stood out more than anything was her intense work ethic. Yeah. She worked all the time. She was working around the clock, doing crazy gigs, like crazy hours worth of gigs and like flying everywhere and like flying in, flying out constantly. She just never wanted to stop, but it seemed that she was working in such a way she felt like it could be taken away at any time. And that's what she'd been up against her entire career. And, and Emily Nussbaum does talk about that in, the, in that great profile. I mm. loved that profile. It was so great. Everything kind of was taken away from her. Like I didn't really know the specifics of her kind of feud with Johnny Carson um, until I read that article and it really prompted me to go down a real YouTube wormhole with Joan. I rewatched the documentary. I sought out this 1973 film she wrote called The Girl Most Likely To, starring Stockard Channing, which Emily Nussbaum kind of frames as this almost like autobiographical dark comedy where the central character is this girl who is so bullied and teased for the way that she looks that she moves colleges a hundred times, you know, five different times, takes all these different classes, learns all these different skills, and then uses them to take revenge on the people who bullied her after she gets in such a big car accident that she has full facial reconstruction surgery, comes out like a bombshell, who then goes on this rampage of like killing everyone who ever bullied her. And there's something in that that is so Joan, where she she took this like wounded, hurt energy into her critiques of other women. So it felt like there was always this kind of like, what's that phrase where it's like, if you're pointing a weapon at someone else, it's pointing back at yourself. Like you're pointing a finger at someone you've got four pointed back at yourself. Like that was very Joan. Yeah. Her feud with Johnny Carson kind of played out because she was his permanent co-host. He gave her this platform 
and she used it and they loved each other and they like bounced off each other for years. All these other male comedians took Carson as like a launching pad to their own shows. People like George Carlin and Bill Cosby and um, not great examples, but uh, you know, as far as a template to follow, Joan followed that template. She got a late night talk show was the last woman to ever really have one on like um, free to air, like, you know, non cable TV. And there hasn't been one since, but Carson blacklisted her. He never had her back on the show. Jay Leno, who got the show after him, never had her back on the show. It took until Jimmy Fallon in 2014, it was like months before she died, that she finally got to go back on The Tonight Show. And when she came out, she opens with like a Holocaust joke. And I think she's talking about like a, sitting on a hernia cushion or something like Jimmy and Jimmy. Jimmy Fallon isn't great at like riffing at the best of times. He just, he has nowhere to go except like, welcome back to the network, Joan. Yeah, she came back swinging. And we saw in a piece of work her empty schedule too, which was obviously such a motivator for her to never let it get that bare again. Yeah. Um, One of the other things that really stood out to me in that documentary was her filing cabinet of jokes. Oh my God incredible she filed every single joke under theme or like genre topic I do remember there was one and it was like New York next to no (laughs) self-worth such a funny combination there's an article in the New York Times actually that we'll link to in the show notes an interview with the guy who sorted out her entire archive oh my god oh good my dream job so Joan was obviously like a very big inspiration for the tv show Hacks as well which I think is coming back next month the main character Deborah Vance is a very Joan-esque figure this woman who was on the late night shows and then was on the Vegas circuit and has been kind of like churning out this same material and doesn't quite understand the newer generation, but the newer generation sees her as, as the title suggests, this kind of like hack figure until they come to really understand what she had to endure to get there, to be like the one woman allowed to do what she does. Did you see last year that there was supposed to be a dramatized series about Joan Rivers' life? It oh my was God. called The Comeback Girl and Catherine Hahn was going to star as Joan Rivers, but it was cancelled late last year because the producers hadn't actually cleared getting the rights to Joan Her Rivers' life. life. Yeah, fuck. Because Melissa Rivers, Joan's daughter, holds them mm-hmm. and wouldn't give them up. Wow. Yeah. So Who was writing this story without the life rights? I mean, I guess that's something that you could be pitching, and then you would pitch it to get the life rights. Yeah. But yeah, essentially. But I would have, I would have liked to see that. Catherine show. Hahn is also great casting for something like that. Yeah. Where do you stand on uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is, it's got to be kind of loosely based on Joan's life in some way, right? Yeah. It's well, it's the era, and it's the job, and it's the. Glass ceiling shattering, right? Mm. But it's written Joan out of the history of that world where it's written in people like Lenny Bruce, who she encountered and worked with. I've I've only watched the first season and the start of the second, and I liked the apartments and I liked the, you know, the pot roast, the brisket. Sorry, they're two different things. I like the brisket. The jokes weren't funny. And I found her, it was so Amy Sherman Palladino-y that like it could just see her little top hat in the background of every scene being like, well, kid, yes. What do you say? You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Oh, uh, yeah. 
I really felt like, oh, God, here's a show made for me. Mm. You know, it's like set in that particular time period. And for the record, Gilmore Girls, one of my favourite shows of all time. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Just didn't do that kind of character justice. The mm. main character, Mrs. Maisel, is so annoying past the point of okay annoying. Like, I really love an unlikable character, an yeah. unlikable female character. My favourite thing, I like to think I am one. Mm. But... You know, there is a point. Amy Sherman Palladino isn't great at writing like a mouthy broad who's always a brunette who people aren't obsessed with. Like Lorelai Gilmore was the toast of the town. Everyone was like, she's so sweet. She's so funny. That daughter of hers, those blue eyed Gilmore girls. And then in Bunheads, it was Sutton Foster, which I just, I never got. Mm, yeah, same. And then in Maisel, it's like, there's there's never anyone who doesn't like these women. <laughs> totally. But, but the, the thing, though, is that Lorelai Gilmore was funny. Yeah. She was really funny. She had and great un- taste. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately, Mrs. Maisel <laughs> is not funny at all. And she's constantly just like killing it everywhere. And it's like, that's not, that's yeah. not how that happens. That's not how that happened at all. And this shadowy Lenny Bruce figure in it. It's like Mm. completely infantilizing, iconic comedian Lenny Bruce, who was a well-known heroin addict, Mm. but he's just like her guardian angel. I can't, I can't deal. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I drifted off at the start of season two, so I haven't seen how it progressed, but I did find out that the the actor who plays Lenny Bruce, who I I find so hot, played the bad, the cancelled um, record label dad in the new gossip girl and he played the hot neighbor who michelle williams cheated on seth rogan with in take this waltz so i was looking him up i think the actor's name is like luke daniel he's got two first names he's so ha- i find him so handsome in like a real straight white way you know what i mean like very vanilla but when i looked him up i kept finding all these videos of him and midge of course her name's fucking midge uh-huh. him and midge like having arguments on the street because i guess they finally fucked in like season three or four that's what i hear i did give up after yeah season two when the whenever they did the summer camp in the catskills that season yeah i made it to the end the mother then... like went to france or something at the start and, yeah. and monk was like where's my wife monk <laughs> I often bring things back to the L word. I'm really sorry to do that. It's just very cemented in my brain from a lot of rewatches. So Melissa Rivers, Joan's daughter, she appeared in an episode of the L word. She got together with Tonya in the episode where Tonya and Dana broke up. Iconic locker scene. Uh And she was named by name. Like this is Melissa Rivers. It was Melissa Rivers playing herself. As a lesbian woman in a tennis locker room. Is she a lesbian in real life? No. No, she's one of those where you're like, oh, maybe, but no. It turns out acting. Mm-hmm. One of the people who features really heavily in the Joan Rivers documentary, A Piece of Work, is Kathy Griffin. And knowing that we had both been keen to talk about Search Party, which she plays a minor but incredible role in in season five, I did a little digging on Kathy Griffin uh, yesterday and uncovered the controversies section of her Wikipedia, which is a really, I thought I knew them all and I really didn't know them all. Like, you know, there's the Donald Trump, the holding up the like severed head of Donald Trump, which got her on like a no fly list, a secret service investigation, all this like incredibly fucked up stuff that happened to her in the last few years. But she also made a cameo. Do you remember last year that article came out about Yasha Ali, that guy from Twitter who like cries about elephants Mm -hmm. um and like fully manipulates celebrities and like leads kind of very enthusiastic cancel campaigns against them 
he kind of initiated himself in her world and lived with her to the point where someone came over to her house and said like, Kathy, you got yourself a grifter. And that was when she finally like kicked him out. Oh my God. Just like Lisa Vanderpump's grifter. Yes. Yes. But she'd been kind of like too nervous to do it. And she was on this, like such a public decline at the time that he kind of presented himself as like this fairy godfather who could like could work the PR and could like help her like claw her way back, which is wild. I only just remembered this. Another one of her (laughs) controversies was that um, she was banned from Ellen because Ellen, famously nice Ellen DeGeneres, uh, said that she can't trash, quote unquote, trash celebrities. Ellen, who like traumatizes celebrities on the Mm -hmm. daily by putting them in situations they're terrified of. She was also fired from an appearance on the Hannah Montana show because in an Emmys acceptance speech, um, she said, suck it, Jesus, this award is my God now. <laughs> and um, when the controversy around that photo of her holding Donald Trump's head was going on, she was also dropped um, from her position as a spokesperson for Squatty Potty. <laughs> oh, my God. The Lisa Rinner of it all, really, right? Like, really. Wow, Squatty Potty. Yes, the, like, QVC that seeps into everything. I mean, Joan was big on QVC, right? Yeah, and Lisa had her own range too. Yeah, they all do. So, yeah, all that to say, Kathy Ruby back baby in season five of search party (laughs) playing a woman named licorice and she truly she's back with a vengeance it's a small but mighty role oh it's such a good role and i i'm one of those people who has just almost no opinion on kathy griffin i'm like yeah it's kathy griffin yeah she did great (laughs) she could but Yeah, she's very good in Search Party. Wow. Yeah, a season where truly so much happens. It's what, 10 episodes that veer from like institutional comedy to cult comedy to like a, I mean, no spoilers, but a kind of apocalypse style. Yeah, it's very dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Search Party is one of those shows that has been such a joy to watch every season of. So they had five seasons. It started in 2016. Um, it stars Alia Shawkat as Dory Seif and her sometimes boyfriend, Drew Gardner, is played by John Reynolds. And then there are these two best friend sidekicks who do a lot of heavy lifting, I will oh, say. Yeah. There is, of course, Meredith Hagner as Portia Davenport, who I am obsessed with. Adore. And John Early in like his greatest role ever, surely. Surely. Um, as Elliot Goss. I've got a little John Early search party seal so we could do a whole episode just of john early seal so oh fully but he did really good grub street diary while filming the latest season in which he talks about the fact that he's doing hardly any work and is not ever needed on set and it's very funny we'll link to it in the show notes my favorite um genre of john early content is just the escalation of his sexual tension with seth myers every time he goes on the show they have this ongoing bit which started when he wore one of his costumes from search party on the show which is a sheer suit like a white shirt that you would wear under a suit but it was sheer like a translucent yes. situation. And so mm-hmm. he came out and started doing like, my eyes are up here, Seth. And like the, the chemistry is electric. So they're all the main characters, but we have to give the shout out to uh, Claire McNulty, who plays Chantelle Witherbottom, who this actress is amazing. She gives one of the most deranged performances of all time on television. Every part of her face 
is like a genre unto itself. Yeah, she's like that actress in Licorice Pizza. You know, love to Tatum. The series starts with Chantel unknowingly and the journey that she takes us on from um, episode one, this kind of, you think you know what Search Party is when it starts, right? This like satirical millennial uh, spy show, I guess. Yeah, like very Nancy Drew-esque. Yeah, and it's like Brooklyn quote unquote hipsters in like, what, it was released like the year before Girls wrapped up. So we kind of thought we knew what this show was going to be. And then every single season it changed so massively like the second season is like a noir thriller and then it goes into this crime procedural yeah like courtroom drama that was where I realized what they were doing with the genres because because seasons one and two kind of bleed into each other pretty neatly but then by the time you get to season three I was reviewing season three so I watched it all and like wrote about it in a weekend and ended up re-watching one and two and was like holy fuck what where are they taking us Because, yeah, we spend most of season three seeing these characters as, like, celebrities all of a sudden who are, like, famous for being on trial for murder. Yeah, and then by season four, it becomes this... It's just, I mean, how do you describe it? It's it, completely bonkers. Yeah, it's like a camp abduction. It's like the movie Room, but, like, queer and um, crafty. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I like that. Featuring Susan Sarandon. And Cola Scholar yeah. as the twink, which is amazing. Incredible. So, I mean, the whole thing is just incredibly self-referential, very self-aware show. So by the time you get to season four, it was at that point where I thought, oh, my God, they're just doing whatever the hell they want. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy to go along with it, even though it kind of it gets patchy a little bit. From I found around season then. four really hard to watch too. Mm. Like the first three episodes was really claustrophobic and really intense and like kind of traumatic to watch, but you stick with it and you're really rewarded for yeah, your time. Richly rewarded. So when we found out that this, they were wrapping up with season five, I thought, oh God, what are they going to do to these characters? And I could not have predicted this. No. No, they didn't do the, you know, it. perhaps they had a conversation about like, do we do a, a pandemic finale or something like that? Do we take these characters back to the start? They'd changed so much, but also the most fucked up thing is that they hadn't changed at all. They were still these like insular narcissists who by this point had achieved all this like fame for their narcissistic actions like in seasons one and two and where they took that was just like this bizarre delirious like cult journey featuring Jeff Goldblum playing was this character's name Tunnel Quinn yes and he plays like an Elon Musk kind yeah. of character and his lair like well, not his lair but his company is um has this very sci-fi mm. office space which is the museum of the moving image in Queens stop yeah funny huh I guess so Dory believes that she is love essentially mm. that she feels love just coursing through her veins and she needs Mm. to connect it to the the people and so this whole season is about kind of designing this very elizabeth holmesy way of getting that into a oh my god truly to give to the people they bring in a series of influences to kind of do do their work Mm -hmm. yeah i found myself with season five like you said about people who tweet things like 
give me recommendations for Paris. Like my nightmare in life is seeking mass opinion from people, <laughs> like posting an Instagram story that's like, what did everyone think about Search Party season five? But I did find myself when it came out and people were posting things like, what the fuck did I just watch? I found myself doing a thing that I don't do, which is responding and like getting into kind of, I'm not going to say argument. I got into dialogue with people about season five. Dialogue. Yeah. That's what I call it now because they were like, you know, I was having these conversations with fully strangers that I don't know where they were kind of like, this show lost its way. Like what the fuck was that? It was like ridiculous. And I just was really pushing that point that we were just saying, which is every single season was this new genre, but also there was a point, I think it was in season two where the kind of like moral center of the show, which we thought was Dory when, when it started became Portia really at some point in season two. And she essentially said like, our lives have been fucking ruined because Dory was bored and because you wanted something bigger with your life. And there are just several points along the way where they all try to escape from like, quote unquote, Dory's clutches, but then find that they're, they're bored or they're a bit restless or there's nothing really going on and they all make their way back to her. So it's this, this kind of like Ouroboros of like narcissism where they're mad at her for leading their lives astray, but they're also like so obsessed with the like energy and the momentum and the like scandal that she brings to their lives that they can't escape. They don't want to really. There's so much meta commentary on Mm. the way that we work and like the millennial way of working in particular. And I really love how it is commenting on this kind of millennial lifestyle, but, and that a lot of critics were obsessed with that at the time when it first came out. Then they actually kind of answered to that in the show and mentioned that the, how much the show has changed. Yeah. Like season one, like you said, it, it premiered in 2016. So by the time they came back for season three for the like courtroom procedural, their um Michaela Watkins plays the like defense or prosecutor I don't know which is which the one who's trying to put them in jail and she's kind of creating this defense that's all around like these millennials just going out there for a thrill kill trying to like get their likes or whatever and someone kind of says to her like yeah, we're not really doing that like millennial, spoiled millennial thing anymore. Like, I don't know if anyone's told you, we've, we've kind of moved on. And the show fully had as well, like these were not kind of aimless hipsters, like going out to brunch anymore because the show had surpassed that, but also like the cultural conversation had as well. Yeah. It had all just moved on. Yeah. Really. I love that about it. And I think it kind of comes down to the fact that the two creators of the show obviously just had quite a lot of control the whole way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Rogers and Sarah Violet Bliss. And they created it with Michael Showalter, comedian who became actor and producer of a lot of films. But he also played Jack Berger's friend in an episode of Sex in the City, the episode after Berger breaks up with SJP on a post-it. I'm sorry, I can't. Don't hate me. It's the episode after that. And uh, Carrie and her friends go to bed. Did you remember that? Ah, mm-hmm. restaurant, but it's all actual beds that you sit on, well, which is I remember like disgusting. Them talking about it on TV shows. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So foul. It's just yuck. But Michael Showalter plays one of Berger's friends, and I can bring it back to Search Party. Well, Berger, Berger is in the first season of Search Party. The way that season five, the, especially the the detour into like cult land, it escalates to a point where. As I was watching it, I was truly questioning whether what I was seeing was really happening in the world of the show 
or if it was just happening through Dory's kind of delusional, delirious, narcissistic perspective, because it gets truly outrageous and like out of the realm of reality at many points. And that's been kind of a trend in a bunch of stuff I've been watching recently. I had this like I've had this running list of like delusional women, unreliable narrators um, that have been cropping up in like a bunch of stuff I've been watching, including I don't I hate that I'm mentioning it every episode of the podcast because I famously didn't like it. But like there's a theory that yellow jackets, what the girls are experiencing is just this um, kind of like mass delusion that comes from like starvation and isolation and all of these things. Scream 5, which technically was just called Scream, but I'm calling Scream 5 for, you know, convenience sake. There's this idea of like um, this hallucination plotline going through Scream 5, which also links back to Scream 3, where Sydney had these visions of her mother coming to her, which is truly the scariest part of Scream 3. I still watch it behind my hands covering my eyes. Your favourite movie, Spencer... Um, it's not my favorite movie. <laughs> I mean, look, Spencer, which you loved a lot more than I did. That's better. Um, and The Lost Daughter as well. There's this thread running through it where Olivia Coleman's character is not always the most reliable narrator. She, Her brain kind of wanders off and we follow it visually. And then I was watching like a bunch of films that were all about like religion from the eyes of Tammy Faye to um, Benedetta. But I also finally watched Saint Maud um, directed by Rose Glass. It's this 2019 film. I think it goes for like 70 or 80 minutes. It's one of those really compact, really tasteful, stylish little genre films that just really knows what it is and knows what it's trying to say. And it has that similar strain that runs through Search Party Season 5, which is kind of what spirituality and like this idea of like love and religion and faith does to a person, like what harm it does, but also um, what it does to kind of like betray reality. And, you know, Benedetta in all of her escapades, she was also, there was the question of like, is she is she truly a miracle or is she a... Uh, pulling that statue of the Virgin Mary on top of her and then calling everyone to come look. The eternal question. Yeah. Speaking of kind of delusional women, have you seen Duck Butter, the film that was co-written by Alia Shawkat? Yeah, it's on Netflix. It's like a, it's an interesting watch. It's a mm-hmm. bit of an experiment. It was directed by Miguel Arteta and co-written with um, Alia. It's about two women who meet and decide to spend 24 hours together and to have sex on the hour every hour in a way to kind of speed through a normal relationship. Right. An interesting watch for, for the Alia fans. She also performed in The Second Woman, the incredible uh-huh. um, the incredible endurance theatre work by Nat Randall and Anna Brecken. Uh, she performed it at BAM. I've only seen the work with Nat Randall in that role. Uh, and they had a work together, Nat and Anna. They had a new work called Set Piece set for rising last year mm-hmm. but it's on this year instead mm. uh, and it looks absolutely incredible another beautiful yeah I bought, durational performance work yeah I bought tickets to that knowing very little about it except that um the second woman had played a few years ago and I felt real FOMO for not having gone to see it yeah I, you should have <laughs> <laughs> fair all right um as well as I, I mean I wrote down um bored to death as this kind of like connecting piece between I guess like girls and search party that like 
Brooklyn hipster PI story um, starring Jason Schwartzman. I had forgotten about that show. I really yeah. enjoyed it. The two creators of uh, Search Party, Charles Rogers and Sarah Violet Bliss, made this film called Fort Tilden in 2014 that I really highly recommend people seek out. It is so fucking funny. It is really one of those kind of New York in the summer where everything is like 10 times as hard as it has to be, but you put two privileged little cunts in the middle of it and just see how they kind of go about their lives with no regard for anyone around them. John Early makes like a little cameo. It's really, really fun. Speaking of John Early, he and his comedy partner, Kate Berlant, who also features every now and then in Search Party, uh, made this short film a few years ago called Rachel, which is on Vimeo. And it's based on a true story of a woman named Rachel who just kind of appeared at a small intimate gathering of friends at John Early's apartment. And it took quite a while for everyone to realize that this strange girl who started playing a podcast on the Bluetooth speaker and took her shoes off and was smoking inside was not friends with anyone there. She had just like followed them into their house. This is not spoiling anything because it truly plays out so brilliantly and um, highly recommend watching Rachel and then also uh, John Early's interview with Seth Meyers about it. It's time for Also Also's where we recommend a couple of things that are unrelated to what we've been talking about, but that we're vibing on. Mm -hmm. What's your first one, BL? My first one is an episode of the podcast Bandsplain, all about Liz Fair. The host of Bandsplain, Yasi Salik, and uh, producer Dylan brought in uh, writer Nico Stratus for this one. And it's like four and a half hours of deep diving on Liz Fair, her history, the way that her work is connected, and it's on Spotify so you can hear the songs they're talking about in between. It's great. Cannot wait to listen to that. If you make it to the end, there's a little cameo from 1BL. Mm. I've got to watch also because we've been talking so much about funny things all episode. I thought, you know, if you're feeling very serious, I'll give you something to watch. Uh, a really high recommendation from me for the documentary Attica. It's on Paramount Plus in Australia, Showtime in the US. It was recently up for Best Doc at the Oscars. Lost out to Summer of Soul, which is also extremely good. I saw this one at TIFF last year and it was one of the best films I saw at that festival. It's about the largest prison uprising in US history. Um, it happened in 1971 was centered around demands for better living conditions. It lasted five days, ended in bloodshed. The guards were incredibly brutal, wildly racist. Uh, and the film really goes into all of this in a kind of micro level and also looks at it in, from a macro kind of perspective. It was a really significant turning point in the prisoners' rights movement. And it's funny. No, it's not funny. Oh, <laughs> it's if you've had too much funny. If you've had too much funny. Right. I was, your setup for that, I was listening to it all being like, oh my God, how are they going to make this funny? Well, if that was what they set out to do, <laughs> they, they failed. failed. My next one is like a clean also. I'm just going to spruik feather dusters. I just bought one on the advice of the writer of Ask a Clean Person, Jolie Care, this column that ran in like, the hairpin and slate for years. Um, also, if you Google any version of like how to clean my house or like effective ways to clean, you will get this, you know, very thorough article that she wrote for the New York Times last year. I personally bought the 50 centimeter ostrich 
Feather Duster from Australian Duster and Feather Superstore, which despite its name seems to be a very small business because they sent me like seven emails over the course of the day, just like updating me on the status of my one order. And the final email came from Norm, who I believe is the owner of the Superstore. Such service. Yeah, really good service. It's great for knickknacks. You don't have to take them all off the shelf. You can just dust them. I've got to wear also... I've recently fallen really deeply in love with this Australian label called Caves Collect based in Melbourne and they do really chic tailored clothing like the perfect shirt, the perfect blazer, the perfect Mm. pants. They're a sustainable company, focus on ethical fashion. They do really low runs of items. They don't have a brick and mortar store, so you have to buy directly through them. They use like dead stock fabrics where possible. I recently bought the Fred blazer and the Kate pants. Mm. Well, I had to, I really had to. I got served an Instagram and I, mean, I was yeah, like, well, I got her. And I was kind of terrified by myself for ordering such tailored pieces online but Mm. you know what they turned up and they were goddamn perfect wow beautiful stuff my final buy also is fresh flowers just the concept of them i haven't done it in months i did it on both saturday and sunday and i'm really glad that i did yeah look i'm a big sucker for a floral display I spend too much money on that. It's a real indulgence. When you chuck them out a week later, I like them. Yeah, I like Worth them. it. Mm-hmm. The last one is a listen also. There's a new Aldous Harding album out called Warm Chris. It's her fourth album. She's a New Zealand songwriter. The album cover art is like as far away from Lord's cover album as you can get. You know, Lord in a bikini. <laughs> Another famous New Zealand upper musician. Butt. Yeah. Yeah, bikini upper butt. In this one, the artist is wearing a puffer jacket. Basically, the arrival of this album means that I can give Kate Le Bon's latest album, Pompeii, a rest. Aldous Harding is a freak in the highest and most complimentary sense of the word. For a sec, I really thought you were going to say a freak in the sheets. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't know, but, you know, maybe that too. Allegedly. (laughs) Allegedly. Thanks for listening to See Also. If you liked it, please tell your friends, enemies. Leave a review if you can. You don't have to use your real name. And it really helps get our podcast out to people we don't know. Yeah, and you can also follow us on Instagram at See Also Podcast. Thanks as always to Samuel Hodge for our beautiful artwork and Harvey Sutherland for our original theme music. See you next week. See ya.